0: Well, appropriate introduction for my message, I think. So, Hey, glad to have you in worship today, whether you're watching online or whether you're in the room. Uh, we consider this a serious responsibility to uh, have, you know, 20, 30 minutes of your time to just pour into you, not our counsel, not my best opinion about something, but rather faithfully just share with you and, and read with you God's word and derive some important value in our life. And be reminded most of all, that God is in your corner, that Jesus came into the world not only to grant us eternal life, but to grant us access to God's word, access to God's throne of grace in prayer. And uh, that's something that we cannot be reminded of too often. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth, Lord, all that, all that uh, I want to share, I, I pray that they would be faithful uh, to you that uh, I would not stray uh, beyond your word, but derive from your teaching uh, important counsel for my life and for the lives of those who study alongside. And Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts. There are, um, you know, a thousand people uh, listening just now, and and I pray, Lord, that, that you would bring the message that they need to hear from all the words that would be spoken, that they would find the right encouragement, the, the right counsel, the right redirect to put their life on a, on a path that would be beneficial to them and beneficial to those around and bring glory to you. All this we pray in Christ. Amen. Well, there's a truth about life that out of the ordinary, God achieves extraordinary outcomes. And I say, unless you're running for high office, <laughs> most people tend to downplay their personal importance. I don't suppose that we're going to hear that much from these two, but that's true about us. You know, if if somebody would say, I've got an important job for you to do, and you're just the person to do it, you might say, "Um, I think you don't know me so well. I think you have the wrong person in mind. I think that's normal for people when they think that you could be somebody. You could be somebody truly significant in the hands of the Lord. I know when I first uh, became a pastor, I grew up in a pretty ordinary uh, family. My dad was blue-collar. They were poor most of their life, and and I went to school uh, because of uh, sponsorship uh, from a man uh, in my city and my church that believed in my potential long before I did, uh, sponsored me to go to a college prep high school and, and even then continued uh, through academic scholarships and through other means and through his continued support to, to go on to college. One of the uh, first and only in my family to do that. Uh, But when I got to the seminar and I began to study, I looked around and these guys were sons of pastors, sons of teachers. You know, they knew what they were getting into. I don't know that I would have been allowed in the parsonage when I was a child. And, and, And so that filled me with insecurity. I began to think, you know, who am I to think that I could do this job? In fact, early in my ministry, I used to sit in that chair right before the sermon and I thought, who are you? And what makes you think you have anything to say to these people? You know, that insecurity just hangs with you, doesn't it? Especially when you compare yourself to other people. In fact, because of that, I spent the first years of my ministry and to this day continue to read biographies and autobiographies of famous people. In fact, I've probably read hundreds of them. My wife is, uh, secretly takes them to the used bookstore and sells them when I'm not nearby uh, because they're like my children and my books just keep finding their way off my shelf. But uh, I've come to understand through that reading that most significant people uh, have come from common background. In fact, I was talking just uh, backstage before walking out here. Uh, somebody was praising my teaching and I just said, well, this is just God into his glory. If, if you knew who and what he had to deal with, you, you probably wouldn't be saying that. But I, I think that that's true even of teachers. You know, the best teachers are teachers who've had to struggle in school themselves because they get it. They can identify with the student. The teacher who had it easy uh, through school and and was the perfect A student uh, maybe might be unaware of the struggles and, and how best to teach. Not always. I think it helps if you're somewhat intelligent. I'll grant you that in any profession. But out of insignificance, some significant things can be accomplished. Uh, That's even true uh, in Scripture. In fact, if you look at the people who made a name for themselves in the Bible, or more properly, who God used to accomplish great things, Abraham was 75 years old. He was on a pension, I think, maybe Social Security. When God called him out of Haran to to take him, a man past his prime to show him a new country. Who would say I'm going to leave all of this? I finally got my house in perfect order. You know, I'm pretty comfortable here. I'm going to become a nomad again and I'm going to journey to a distant land that you're going to show me and out of my house you're going to make a great nation. At 75, he had not not yet even given birth to a child. How could this possibly be? Impossible and yet God did it. Moses, one of the great leaders of all time, you know, stood up to Pharaoh and and was used to do incredible things for the children of Israel, was born into slavery at a time when all male children were to be put to death uh, because of the fear of the Egyptians. And his mother said, what am I going to do with this child? I can't allow him to uh, be massacred. And, and so she hid him as best she could. But then babies don't stay babies and he couldn't just be hid in the house anymore and and you know the story how she put him in a basket covered with tar and had Miriam watch him and not knowing just one day at a time and, and God worked through that and brought about a great miracle. David was the youngest of eight boys in the family of Jesse. In fact, when Samuel came down to choose a new king, Jesse didn't even think that it might be David. He had to be reminded that he has another son, go bring him in. And David was only just a mere boy when God saw, when God saw something special in him. Matthew, one of the gospel writers, uh, the first gospel writer, the man who quotes the Old Testament more than anyone else uh, in the telling of the life of Jesus was a tax collector, despised by Jewish people, had no reputation. Why Jesus would even associate with such people like that, it would bring him down in the eyes of everyone that he wanted to reach because tax collectors got their job by making a bid on taxes to Rome. They got the bid by promising the most money. And they promised the most money because they weren't going to pay it. They were going to tax the people. And they were going to add a surcharge so that they could themselves uh, make some money. That was Matthew. And yet he's becoming a prominent figure. Most would have discounted him and said, no, Lord, you don't, you don't want a tax collector on your team. Or Peter, James, and John, fishermen. Just fishermen. Not educated people. In fact, they were even from the wrong side of the Sea of Galilee. They were not on the western bank where people would like to travel down to Jericho and then Jordan up to Jerusalem and over to the Mediterranean Sea. No, they were on the east bank. They were over by Jordan and Bethsaida. Uh, that's a place you had to be wanting to go to. No one ever went to Bethsaida. In fact, if you go there today, it's still kind of like that. There are signs everywhere warning you not to step off the road because the Jordanians have mined the hillside and you could blow yourself up if you stray from the street. You know, that's the people that Jesus chose, Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. We would not even know their names. They would have been a blip in history, except God chose them. And and when later it was said that Jesus was from Nazareth, one of his own disciples said, before he began to know who the Lord was, he said, Nazareth, nothing good comes from there. You know, that's where God chose uh, to recruit the people who would shape the life of our Savior Jesus in his younger years. And then to be born in Bethlehem, uh, you know, just a, a speck of a place, a crossroads. I don't even think there's a fuel station in Bethlehem back in Jesus' day. I'm pretty sure there wasn't. It was just a, a bread basket, a place where uh, shepherd boys hung out. Uh, it, it wasn't well known. In fact, there are a hundred other cities bigger than Bethlehem that you've never heard of. And yet God has chosen the despised things of the world to shame the things that are. Paul was a terrorist. He was assigned the duty of, uh, you know, killing Christians or putting them in chains. Why would God choose Paul, a man with a reputation like that, to preach to the Gentiles or, or to be the writer of most of the New Testament. Paul said, there's only one reason I can think of. God chose the despised things to say to the rest of us who feel that we have no value before God. If he could do this for Paul, then I guess he could accept me as well. In fact, Paul went on to write about it when he said, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise By human standards, you weren't the brightest, you know, bulb in the house, the sharpest knife in the drawer. No, many of you were not influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. You were pretty much nobodies. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that people think are wise. God has chosen the weaker things of the world to shame the things that people think are strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are of nothing to nullify the things that people think are so important so that no one can boast before him. So this whole series is called uh, Out of the Ordinary. If you have ever said, I am nothing special, I have no unique talent, no ability. This stage is full of uh, gifted people and at work there are people who have tremendous ability and And in my family, I'm the least important and and lacking any kind of significance. Then God says, man, you are exactly the person I need. In this series, we're going to be studying people like that. Not the big names in the Bible, but the people who helped the big names in the Bible and kept them on track to accomplish the things that are important. The study of the ordinary person that we want to look at today uh, is uh, Abigail. But before that, there's a quote by Abraham Lincoln I wanted to share that uh, says God must have loved the common man. He made so many of them, you know. I don't know whether Abraham Lincoln said that. I mean, when you think about his history too, you know, from Illinois, has a president ever come out of Illinois? Abraham Lincoln did and uh, and, and did some incredible things. In fact, most would say he was the greatest president we've ever had today, but it wasn't thought that way most of his tenure in office. God uses common people to do uncommon things, Today's ordinary person is is Abigail. We're going to get to it in a minute in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I wish that you would read the entire chapter. It's a great story to read to your children, in fact. It's that kind of story. It's a powerful story of how God used a a woman to achieve great things. You can read the Bible, and there aren't a lot of great stories about women in there, but your daughters especially should know about Abigail and some others that are in there. She was married to Nabal of Maon. Now, Nabal's name actually means fool. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a rich fool. The guy who said, what am I going to do? I have so much money, I don't know what to do. I'm going to build some bigger barns and I'm going to store up all my food for the future. And and I'm going to say, sit back, take it easy, enjoy life, you've earned it. And God said, you're a fool tonight your life is going to be required of you, and who will own all the things that you consider so important? So Nabal's word, I don't know what his parents were thinking when they called him uh, Nabal. In fact, Abigail refers to him later in the story when she talks to David, and she goes, my husband is as his name. He's a fool. She didn't respect her husband greatly. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, He was from Maon. Now, Hebron was about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the big city, you know, the most important place for Jewish people. Hebron is today kind of a violent place. It's, it's pretty far south of Jerusalem. In fact, tourists often don't even go to Hebron uh, because it is still a place marked by violence. And, but he was not even born in Hebron. He was uh, from Carmel. Carmel was about seven miles south of, of Hebron, and then Maon was out in the country. Let's just say it was the Grover, you know, of his day. But, uh, you know, outside of Chesterfield, outside of St. Louis, you know, you know, it's in that area. I can say that because I actually own a home now in Grover, so I, I can get away with that. But, you know, so this is who she was married to. Now, he was a pretty wealthy guy. In fact, the Bible tells us before the section I'm going to read to you, uh, he had 3,000 sheep that he was shearing that day. He had 1,000 goats. I mean, this guy had some herds. And he had a lot of shepherds to take care of the herds. He could have never managed those animals so far away from the protection of Hebron, so far away from the protection of Saul's armies in Jerusalem had he not had David guarding him and protecting his animals and his uh, shepherds. But he was extremely rich. They lived in the middle of nowhere. I think I've established that already. So uh, it it was a tough place to live. And Abigail was Nabal's trophy wife. I don't have any problem saying that. Uh, In this day, uh, back in the day of, of David, women didn't choose their husbands and they weren't married on the basis of love. These were all arranged marriages. And parents often made sure that their daughters were married to a wealthy man. For one thing, they received a large dowry from that person. And, uh, secondly, they also had some assurance that in their old age they would be provided for because their daughter was connected. So love had very little to do with it. Thank God we're past that and wealthy men no longer have beautiful women. Thank God, you know, we've, we've moved on. You know, we've gotten a little more sophisticated in our day. Well, let's, uh, read the story beginning at 1 Samuel, uh, 25, beginning at verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, uh, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. I'm sure he's gonna be eternally grateful for all that we've done for him. Uh, Say to him, long life to you, Nabal. Good health to you and to your whole household and good health to all that is yours. You know, kind of reminding him, you have a lot of things. I've made sure that everything has gone well with you. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time when your shepherds were with us we did not mistreat them. Now, David is not just some outlaw during this time. Uh, In in fact, uh, David doesn't just have 12 people following him. He has 600 men capable of war who are following him. David was just as strong and as capable as the king Saul And David protected these people who lived in the hinterlands, who had no protection from the king's army. Uh, We did not mistreat them. We didn't steal from them. We could have. We could have taken everything you have, but we didn't. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs came up missing. Thieves, robbers, wild animals. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my men, since they come at a time of slaughter, you know. Whatever you can afford, whatever you can give, whatever you can share. Uh, Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited for Nabal's response. Did I say Nabal's name means fool? Uh, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Believe me, he knew who David was. Who is this son of Jesse? I hear that many such outlaws are breaking away from their masters these days and living on the lamb. Why should I take my bread and my water and my meat, which I have slaughtered for my people, and give it to men who are coming from God only knows where? You know, really disrespecting David. David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word to David. I think before they left That camp, after having talked to uh, Nabal's servants, I think they probably said, um, you should probably find some shelter because this is not going to go well for you or for your master when we bring this message back, when we tell David how he was insulted uh, by your master. These were perilous times. In, In fact, the opening verse of the chapter says, now Samuel had died and all Israel mourned his passing. Samuel was the glue that brought God's blessing into the land of God's people. Saul was as crazy as, I won't even finish the sentence, but he was crazy. In fact, uh, everybody knew that he was self-destructing. Everybody knew that God had given his favor to David and they were just waiting to see how it would play out and how David would finally rise up and destroy uh, King Saul who had become so corrupt. These were perilous times and they lived in a perilous place. They lived far from any kind of protection. The text continues then with verse 13. David said to his men when they brought back the message that Nabal disrespected you, David. They said, strap on. And so every man put on his sword and so did David. David wasn't going to just send 50 guys to take care of Nabal. He could have sent 20 guys to take care of Nabal. David strapped on his as well and about 400 of his men came. It was going to be a slaughter. And they went up with David. 200 of them stayed back to protect the camp from the Philistines, protect their supplies. Now, one of the servants of Abigail's, Nabal's wife, uh, came and said, uh, our master just stepped in it and it's not going to go well. He said, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but your husband hurled insults at them instead. Yet these men were very good to us. They never mistreated us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, they never took anything. In fact, they never let anybody else take anything either. Nothing ever went missing. Day and night, they were a wall of protection around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them, they were keeping watch. Now think it over, Abigail, and be wise. See what you can do because disaster is about to rain on us our master and his whole household our master is such a wicked man he listens to no one no one can talk to him abigail uh acted quickly uh the scripture says she was not only a beautiful woman she was extremely intelligent if you ever want to find a good biblical name for your daughter abigail would be a great one Uh, She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five silas of roasted grain, a 100 cakes of raisin, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on her donkeys. Then she told her servants, you go ahead, and I'll be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. She did not tell Nabal because Nabal was drunk out of his mind. He was celebrating all of his wealth, and he was incoherent, the scripture goes on to say. And she came riding on her donkey into a mountain ravine. And there was David and 400 armed men with him descending on their camp. And she met them there. Incredible, incredible thing for a woman to do. You know, women were to be seen and not heard. And she knew that if she did not intercede, it would go badly. Not only for Nabal, her husband, but for all of Nabal's servants, all of Nabal's household, and strangely enough, also for David, she intervened on behalf of others to save them from self destruction. She put herself in harm's way. She never thought about herself. And I think that's the first thing that somebody who intervenes does. It's not about me. Uh, you know, I, I'm not here to uh, seem self important, I'm not here superior to you. I, I'm here just to give a word of counsel because I care. She apologized even though she wasn't responsible. In fact, some of the first words she said to David, if I had been there, this would have never happened. We would have treated you the way you deserve to be treated for all the kindness and all the protection that you provided for my husband's flocks and for my husband's shepherds while they were out in the wilderness. She was not responsible, but she apologized and she said, let your judgment fall on me. She reminded David that God's blessing was more important than anything else. This is huge. She said to David, in fact, the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty of your name, O master, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone would be pursuing you to take your life, the life of you, my master, saying this to David, is bound securely in the bundle of the living Lord. You know, David, don't... Be the bigger man. Don't succumb to your pride. Don't succumb to your anger. Don't do anything wrong here, David, because the Lord's blessing of your life is more important than you getting your revenge. And so she urged David uh, to turn away from doing wrong. She not only interceded on behalf of uh, Nabal, she interceded on behalf of David as well. David's heart was forever changed. Boy, there's a lesson to be learned here. You know, that when somebody brings counsel and and it's godly counsel, you know it when you hear it. You should be willing to listen. No matter what insignificant person brings you wise counsel, uh, David could have brushed her off and he could have gone on and taken his revenge, but David did not. In fact, his words to Abigail were, praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to bring wisdom to me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment, better judgment than mine. And for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. David's heart was changed. By the way, Nabal's heart was changed too. Because although he was too drunk to even know what was about to take place, the next day when he was all hungover, uh, Abigail came to him and said, "Uh, Nabal, did you ever wonder why I wasn't at the feast celebrating with you? let me tell you what happened. And she told him the story and how she met David with 400 armed men about to descend upon their camp. And Nabal's heart seized in him. The scripture says he had a stroke. He lived for about a week and then he died. It's the rest of the story. You need to read the whole chapter. But uh, after he died, then David said, uh, praise to God that he has spared me from taking my own revenge and I turned it over to him and he took care of this for me just as he would uh, also for King Saul who was uh, trying to kill David at every turn. Uh, The Lord took care of that too. David refused to take that into his own hands. And then David sent for Abigail and received her to be one of his wives. And uh, they were blessed after that moment. So, all of these things happened because she heeded wisdom uh, to intercede on behalf of her husband and also on behalf of David. You say, well, I would intercede, but uh, wouldn't that seem like meddling? I mean, these people don't want to hear a word from me. Uh, They would reject me out of hand. What's the difference between meddling and mediating, between meddling and uh, being an intercessor? Well, meddlers escalate a problem. And Meddlers try to poke at people and say, you know, you know what uh, my husband did to you. You know what, you know, David did or was about to do, you know, escalate a problem. That's what meddlers do. Meddlers try to stir it up and try to aggravate a situation. Mediators try to mitigate. They try to diffuse. They try to de-escalate. You know, someone who's truly from God tries to bring calm and peace to a situation. They try to uh, de-escalate a matter, not escalate a situation. In, in fact, every time I think of David and how he handled uh, insults and how he handled abuse and how he handled Saul and how he handled Nabal here, I can't help but think about Romans chapter 12. We have a section of it here that I want to share with you, that chapter, uh, what is also worthy of, of reading. From verse 17, Paul said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. But what a principle for life. Don't give as good as you get. Be careful and do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, some men won't let you have peace. Some some people will hold a grudge against you no matter how kind you are to them. But you should do nothing to aggravate the situation. Do not take your own revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God. Now, David could have said, Abigail, how could I possibly let this insult go? What will people think of me? That a man like your husband, you know, has mistreated me in front of all of my men. I will lose face. Turning something over to God is not the same as doing nothing. Amen? You know, when you say, God, take care of this for me. I I know that you don't want me to act this way. I know you don't want me to give as good as I get. But Lord, uh, this isn't right. Something has to be done about this. And maybe I'm not even wise enough. Lord, you take care of it according to your way and according to your wisdom. And God did. Turning something over to God is not the same as doing nothing. Helpful interveners uh, have the interest of others at heart. There's an incredible book called I'll Quit Tomorrow uh, that gives guidance to those who want to intervene in the life of someone who's being self-destructive. Uh, It was written in the 70s, but it's still a classic book. It's being uh, uh, recopied. It's still out there today. Uh, And uh, the reason it's uh, the reason it's so helpful is because it gives good advice. It gives good advice to people who are suffering from uh, addiction to alcohol, addiction to to drugs, or any kind of uh, behavior that's outside of their control. How do you step in uh, without being shunned, without without just being dismissed? How can you help in the best possible way? And, and this book will, will say that people don't change until the, they reach the bottom. Here, here's how you can help them uh, experience the consequence of behavior sooner, not to hurt them, but to help them realize the consequence of bad decisions. I like this. Uh, the reason I copied this, this was one of the uh, reviews of the book. And I thought this guy understood it. He understood the nature of the book. I've used this book a lot. There are ways to help another person get help and face reality through love and compassion. You got to lead with love and compassion. If you're cynical, if you want to embarrass somebody, if you want to disrespect somebody, if you want to appear superior, that will be smelt on you. Uh, And if you lead with love and compassion, even if they don't receive uh, your counsel, they will know that you acted on love and compassion. So I highly recommend this to anyone who is struggling with trying to help someone who doesn't know they have a problem or doesn't want help. And I wish you all the best. What an incredible insight into how best to intervene. Interveners always have the interest of the other at heart. Uh, Now, intervention can't force an outcome. David could have said, out of my way, Abigail, you know, run her down. He could have ignored her saying, why should I take the little paltry gifts that you have brought to me when I can, at the end of the day, I'm going to own everything that your husband has, and I'm going to take slaves for myself, etc., etc." He could have gone on. You can't know how an intervention is going to force an outcome, but it can make a healthy outcome possible. Uh, This is so important for us, again, to remember, uh, even as we are sometimes the object of an intervention, uh, David had the wisdom to receive counsel from Abigail. I pray that I would always have the wisdom uh, to receive counsel from somebody. He said, you know, have you prayed about this? Is, Is this really the right course? Is this the best way for you to move forward? And just pause for a moment and say, I don't care who's sharing a godly message with you. It could be an insignificant person like Abigail. He had never met before, and yet he heeded her counsel. A word to those who might be on the receiving end of an intervention. I like the way uh, it's found in uh, Ezekiel chapter 33 uh, when he talks about the fact that our job as people who intervene is to be a watchman. In fact, there are watchman societies, and, and and this term comes up in Bible studies, uh, watchman Bible studies, and, and it's out of the scripture. Son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. He would say to you, congregation, and everybody's watching online, I'm, I'm making you a watchman for your friends and for your family. You know, that's what Christians are called to do, to be a watchman, uh, to share wisdom with them. Therefore, listen to what I say. And warn those that they would turn away from the consequence of their action. Uh, If I announce that something bad is about to happen and you know the consequence of behavior and it's about to fall down on somebody and you fail to tell them to change their ways, then they will suffer the consequence of their sin. But I'm also going to hold you accountable. Abigail didn't say, this is not my problem. Thanks for sharing this with me, servants. Let's get on our horses and ride as far away from this camp as we possibly can. She could have saved herself, but she knew that she was responsible because she knew what was right, and she was going to give that message to David to help him as well. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will suffer the consequence of their sin but you will have been praised by God. You will have uh, saved yourself you know, from the judgment of God. You can live with yourself. You spoke a word. And remember, you spoke it in love. You spoke it with compassion. You're not a meddler. You're an interceder. And there's a major difference. Uh, there's a difference between having a responsibility to someone and assuming responsibility for someone. I'm not responsible for your actions. You know, you are free to proceed uh, and suffer the consequence of ill behavior. Uh, But I am responsible to say, you do know where this might end. You know, as a friend, uh, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, you know, as a colleague. Uh, We are responsible to somebody, but we can't be responsible For their action. Finally, to intervene is to really be Christ like. There's a scripture in 1 Timothy that says, There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God to humanity. Jesus Christ was an intervener, he was a mediator. He came to earth and said, Do you understand the consequence of sin? And yet, God has provided a way for you to be saved. It's through simple faith to believe that God is love. And he has done something to provide for your security. He sent his only son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was the intercessor. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And because he lives, the song says, I can face eternity, I can face tomorrow with confidence because he interceded. Think about this. When when it comes to uh, God being our judge, God isn't causing anything to happen in judgment. A judge doesn't cause things to happen. He just upholds the truth. He just announces consequence. You know, God in life says, if you want to live without me in your life, enjoy. It won't be the life that you should enjoy, but it'll be the life that you've chosen and it will eventually lead to emptiness. And if you want to live in eternity without me, I'm not going to force myself on you and I will allow that too. You know, I think about this when I think about the fruit of the Spirit being joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those are virtues of God that will be found in heaven. What's the opposite of joy? What's the opposite of patience? What's the opposite of gentleness? If you don't want God's values, you get the opposite of God's values. If you don't want light, you get darkness. If you don't want love, you get hate. What's it like to live in an environment like that in eternal life? God has spared us from that by sending an intervener in Christ Jesus. Not only for eternal life, but also for this life. I love this passage. Love, love this passage from Hebrews chapter 4 that says not only has Jesus come to give us eternal life, that's why people don't go to church. They say, well, I, can, you know, I have that, I know that, I'm, I'm good when I die. God wants you not only to be good when you die, he wants you to be good in life. It says, We have a great high priest who has entered into heaven. You know what the high priest did? He went in to make intercession, to intervene for the people that were waiting out in the courtyards. That's what the high priest did. Our high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. He's gone into the most holy place, he's gone into the heaven before the throne of God. And so we hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, namely Jesus, isn't unaware of your problems. In fact, he faced them on earth just like we did. Yet he didn't succumb to them. He didn't uh, yield to sin. So, we not only have one who's interceded for us eternally, we have one who intercedes for us now. So we can come boldly to God's throne of grace and say, Father, I've got this issue in my life. And I can expect a Father's loving response. We will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. He intercedes for us in eternal matters. He intercedes for us in temporary, uh, immediate matters as well. It all comes to this. Say these words with me. Speak the truth in love. Once more. Speak the truth in love. Once more. Speak the truth in love. I had a professor, um, Henry Eggert, uh, who was much loved at the seminary. He was an older guy. He had served many, many years in the congregations. He wasn't just a professor that went on to grad school and then began to teach. He actually had experience in the parish. And so he was loved by the guys. And he would quote this passage all the time from the scripture. And he would say, and gentlemen, when in doubt, sit on the side of love. Because God is love. And that'll give you entree. People won't listen to you if they don't know that you love them. But I would go on to say even more that love without truth is not true love. You can't really love somebody and, and hold the truth from them. If you really love someone you got to be willing to step up. you got to be willing to step in because that's how love is shared. There's a scripture that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend will tell you what you need to hear. You know, love without truth is not true love, but truth without love is never heard. You know, if you come in some arrogant fashion, some demeaning fashion, some embarrassing fashion to say, you know what you are and you know what you're doing is wrong... They won't even listen to you. Get out of my house. I don't have any time for you. Cut you off. These are both important. Speak the truth in love. Love without truth is not true love, and truth without love is never heard. Let me pray.